You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. Well, good morning. If you're a guest with us this morning, I know you were greeted earlier, but I just want to express my welcome to you this morning. So glad you're here. Well, if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to make your way to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be looking at one verse this morning, verse 6. Today, we bring this sermon series on rest to a close. Today we're going to close out this series here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. A number of years ago, I went through a crazy busy season of life. Now, it's not like life is any less busy these days, but it was an unusual time. It was a crazy, busy season of life in which I regularly felt overwhelmed, tired, burdened, and even buried most days. And right around that time, as I was experiencing this unusual season that was just crazy busy, a new book was released, a book written by one of my favorite authors, Kevin DeYoung. It actually came in the mail. The book was entitled Crazy Busy, a mercifully short book about a really big problem. And I saw that book as a godsend. It was like manna from heaven when it showed up in our mailbox Kevin is one of my favorite authors whom I greatly benefit. And I really saw this book as an expression of the kindness of God to really minister to me and to help me in this really crazy, busy season of life. And I want to read to you actually the opening words of this book. Because I still remember how Kevin began his book. Some may find this off-putting that he starts this way. I, I found it to be refreshing. Listen to what he says. I quote, I am the worst possible person to write this book. And maybe the best. My life is crazy busy. I don't say that as a boast or a brag. I'm not trying to win any contest. I'm just stating the facts or at least describing the way my life feels almost every single day. I often make the quip, I'm supposed to write a book on busyness if I could only find the time. And I wasn't joking. Then a few paragraphs later, he says this. I don't write this book. As one who has reached the summit and now bends over to throw the rope down to everyone else. I'm more like the guy with a toehold three feet off the ground looking for my next grip. I'm writing this book not because I know more than others. 
but because I want to know more than I do. I want to know why life feels the way it does and why our world is the way it is and why I am the way I am. And I want to change. I find Kevin's candor in these opening verses of this book to not only be inviting, but I see them as a mark of humility. He informs his reader that he didn't write this book because he's some expert, because he's some guru, or because he's sitting on the other side of the table with all the answers. No, he he wrote this book as a fellow struggler seeking answers and wanting to pass along what he had learned. And church, as we close out this series on rest, I I want you to know that I feel the same way Kevin does. I want you to know that that is my heart. I didn't choose to preach on this topic because I saw this need and I viewed myself as an expert and thought, you know what, I'll provide some solutions. I want you to know that I'm a restless person. I'm a restless person. My mind is always on. My heart is always wrestling with a number of different emotions, usually at the same time. On the inside, if you could listen in, I'm often noisy and frantic. I know what it's like to feel overwhelmed. And even some days wondering, am I even doing anything good at all? I know what it's like to battle with feelings of failure, regret, Anxiety, disappointment, depression, and even at times despair. But I've also learned how to fight for peace and to cling for joy and to fix my heart on the hope I have in Christ. This series really has been a journey for me. I have learned so much more about what it means rest. And my prayer is that in the same way that God has met me, He has met you too. That over these last five weeks, God has spoken to you and has ministered to you. And my prayer is that today, through Hebrews eleven six, He will do that again. So let's turn our attention now to God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. There there was a book that I read last year that I really benefited from. This is not the same book I was referencing earlier, Crazy Busy. This was a new book on, on... Related to the topic of rest, this book is entitled Reset, written by David Murray. I actually quoted from this book last week during the message that I gave on sleep. This book has just been a helpful book. It's filled with practical wisdom and counsel regarding sleep and exercise and recreation and scheduling, but all from a spiritual point of view. I was greatly helped by the book. But the real takeaway of that book, the thing that really helped me the most was was a phrase David Murray uses 
throughout the book that really unpacks the basic premise of the book. See, that key phrase that David Murray used actually made it in the subtitle of the book. Remember I told you the book was called Reset? Here's the subtitle. Living a grace-paced life in a burnout culture. The concept of living a grace-paced life really stuck with me. I really was helped by that idea that often we live life with all these expectations, not only of ourselves and we think other people have, but we think God has of us. And that book really helped me often ask myself, am I living a grace-paced life? Well, I want to borrow that phrase from Mr. Murray this morning, but I just want to tweak it a bit. I want to tweak it just a little bit, and I want us to think about what does it look like to live a faith-paced life in a frantic culture? What does it mean? As we close out this series on rest, what does it mean to live a faith-paced life in a frantic culture? Because going back to week one in Psalm 3, we realize that rest comes not from clearing our schedule, Not from just getting a good night's sleep, taking a vacation. Rest comes as a product of faith. When our faith is in the Lord and we're battling all the things that are going on inside and we're putting our trust in the Lord, we we experience rest. And I think living a faith-paced life helps us live at rest. Now, in order to understand what it means to live a faith-paced life, we first must unpack what is faith according to Scripture. And I can't think of a better place to turn to, to answer that question than Hebrews 11, verse 6. And the first thing we discover from Hebrews 11, verse 6, is that faith is essential to pleasing God. Look, look, look at this verse again. Without faith. We cannot please God. That's how the verse begins. Without, without faith, no matter what else we do, without faith, we cannot. We cannot. There's certainty to that. We cannot please God. Now, let's, let's put it positively. The writer of Hebrews says, without and cannot. Let's, let's now put the word with, with faith, we can please God. With faith, we can please God. You see, chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews highlights this truth. It highlights how essential faith is. Anyone, anyone throughout the history of redemption Anyone who has had a relationship with God and anyone who has ever been used by God must express faith in God. You may be familiar with this expression, but Hebrews 11 has been called the Hall of Faith. It's this chronicle of many of the figures in the Old Testament stories. And it shows us how they all had faith. Faith. That's what all they all have in common. Their stories may be different. The characters are different. 
But if you go through the Old Testament, you notice there's, there's one common theme. These were all people, no matter who they were, no matter what their strengths, no matter what their weaknesses, they were all people who had faith in God. See, the point being made throughout this entire chapter is that everyone who is called by God and everyone who is used by God, whether it was Noah or Abraham or Sarah or Moses or David, they all had faith. And it's that faith alone that pleased God. That's what pleased God. That's what got him used by God. It wasn't anything else. It was their faith alone. Look, look again at verse 6. But I actually want to read verse 5 before it to give you just a feel for why verse 6 says what it does. Here's one of the examples. The man named Enoch. You may remember his story. By faith. Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. But how did he please God? By faith. There wasn't anything in him. There wasn't anything about his character. There wasn't anything about his personality that made him worthy of God giving to him what he received. No, he was a man who had faith. Here's the good news embedded in this passage. You don't have to be morally pure, spiritually in tuned, and doctrinally robust to get to God. Faith is the ticket that grants you access to God. Period. Faith is the ticket that throws open the doors of heaven and gives us access to God. So then, what is faith? If faith is so important, it's the only thing that's necessary to please God. Without it, we cannot please God. Then, what is faith? And how do we express it? Well, those are our two points we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at two things. We're going to see the essence of faith. And then the expression of faith. Then at the end, I'm going to give us three points of application. Let's begin with the essence of faith. What is the essence of faith? If faith is so important. That's what causes us to please God. Then let's be clear in what it is. And let me just state this clearly and emphatically right up front. The only kind of faith that saves and the only kind of faith that reconciles people to God must be rooted and grounded in Christ. That's an important thing that we realize that. That's, that, that saving faith and the kind of faith that pleases God, it consists of more than just a mere acknowledgement of God's existence. And the kind of faith that saves and the kind of faith that pleases God is more than just a simple affirmation of his attributes. So when I'm talking about faith, because our culture uses the word faith. Well, I have faith. I have faith in God. But this is not just a talking about, well, I believe he exists. And I believe the attributes about him. No, this, this is a faith that is in Christ. And actually, this is going to sound shocking. But it's important we see this because it's so important. It's not one's faith 
that actually makes us right with God. You say, well, what, do you, what do you mean by that? We must not come to the conclusion that there's something about us or there's something about our faith that makes us desirable or worthy of reward. So we got to be really careful. It's not that God looks at us and says, you know, that's a really good person. I'm glad they put their faith in me. I, I, can, I, can, I can see them being one of, my, one of my people. Or it's not like God says, you know what? Their faith is really sincere. I love sincerity. Because they're sincere. Yeah, I, I accept that. That's pleasing to me. No, there's nothing in us. There's nothing about our faith that makes us desirable or our faith worthy of reward. It is faith in Christ and what He has done that makes our faith acceptable and pleasing. Why is our faith pleasing? Because when we put our faith in Christ, Christ is pleasing to God. And therefore, when our faith is in Christ, we are pleasing to God. That's what faith is. Faith is in Christ. And that's actually the entire point of the book of, of Hebrews. We must not. We must not take chapter 11 and, and gut it of its context. We may not read a lot about Christ in chapter 11. and We hear all this talk of faith. But we must not forget how, how this whole book has been operating this entire time. Let me just give you... A real quick survey of a few things so that we're clear that this whole book is about Christ. Look, look how the book starts. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom... Also, he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Do you understand the point that this, this book starts out with? The writer of this book is saying to the audience, God has been revealing Himself since time began, and He's been revealing Himself to people. But here's what you need to know. God has given you not just His final revelation, His ultimate revelation in Jesus. Everything He revealed before was getting you ready for Him. All the priests, all the sacrifices, all the laws, all the temple, all the feasts, all the all that stuff. It wasn't that it was here and now Christ comes and we don't need that. It was all a signpost getting you ready. And now God has spoken finally and fully. And Christ is that final revelation. Or think about the bookends of this book. Look at chapter 13, verses 20 through 21. The benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good 
that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you see how the book starts and do you see how it ends? It's all about Christ and how Christ is better. Christ is better than any other religious activity. He's better than the law. He's better than the, than the prophets. He's better than Moses. He's better than angels. Christ is ultimate. And even think about chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The next chapter, right after this hall of faith, we're told, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So you, do, you, do, you, do you see it? This entire book, faith isn't just some kind of just broad concept. It's not even just, well, well I believe in the God of the Bible. Well, I believe in Yahweh. Well, I, I, I believe in the attributes of, of, of God. No, faith must be rooted and grounded in Christ. And that's actually the point that, that the author makes even here in this verse. When he says... For whoever would draw near to God. Think about other places in this, this book where we're told to draw near to God. It always points us to Christ. For example, in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence do what? Draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The same point is made a little bit later in chapter 10, verses 19 through 20. For time's sake, not going to read it, but you hear the same language. You are to draw near to God through Christ. That's the point being made. We cannot draw near to God outside of Christ. It's his life, it's his death that made a way for us to have access to God. Christ is the essence of our faith. Which then leads to this question, if Christ is the object of our faith, how do we respond to him? See, if faith is really about trusting in Christ, then, then, then how do we respond to him? Or let me put it a little differently. How do we express faith in Christ? Well, that, that brings us now to point two, the expression of faith. And look at the second half of verse six. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
here at the end of this verse, we discover how to express our faith. And this is so important for us to see because it, it, it's very instructive. It tells us faith is more than just believing a set of doctrines. It involves action. It involves action. The first thing we must do is we must believe. We're told we must believe he exists. I think a better way of putting it is we must believe he is. That's really what the, the original language is saying. It's not just that he exists, that, that he is. Well, what does that mean? Well, he is all that he revealed himself to be as both creator and redeemer. That's what we got to believe. All that God said he is as creator and redeemer, we must believe that is true. And then we must believe that he rewards those who seek him. You see, faith is believing all that God says he is and then coming to him in light of who he is expecting to receive something in return. Isn't that what the writer just said? We believe who he said he is, and we come to him in light of who he is, expecting to receive something in return. You see, faith requires us to move toward God in order to receive from God. Let me say that again, because I think it's really important. Faith requires us to move toward God in order to receive something from God. See, faith isn't just, once again, just mental, oh, I believe there's a God. I believe there's one God. I believe He's the God of the Bible. Faith requires us to move toward God in order to receive something from God. Well, what do we receive? What would be this reward? Well, the reward is this. That we belong to God. And because we belong to God, all we get to enjoy all the benefits of belonging to Him. That's, that's what we get. You see, true faith gets expressed when we expect God to make good on His promises. God has told us who He is, what He's done, and He makes all these good promises. And faith isn't just saying, yeah, I believe that. Faith is us coming to him and saying, I believe all of that. And, I, and I, I, will, I want to receive that. I want to receive all that you are and all that you promise. In other words, faith in God is based on our confidence in the faithfulness of God. So not only is faith objective, we're, we're putting our faith in Christ, it's not about us. It's not about how strong our faith is or how weak our faith is. It's not about how nice of a person we are or how horrible a person we are. But not only is it that, our faith is in the fact that Christ, that God is faithful. Think of it like this. Maybe for some young people, this, this will help. Let me illustrate. Imagine the world's richest man approaches you on the street. And he says to you, I have chosen you to share my inheritance with. And he pulls out two things. He gives you a debit card with your name. And he shows you his bank statement. And your eyes start to go like this when you see all the zeros. You know what faith is? Faith isn't just putting this in your pocket and going, whoa, that guy's got a lot of money. 
Faith is when you take it and you put it in the ATM and say, okay, if he says so, I'll take it. Now, no illustration is perfect. I'm not saying that's exactly how we respond to God. The point being is that's faith. Faith isn't simply just acknowledging, well, that guy's got a lot of money. Well, that was really nice of that guy. Faith requires an action. It requires us to go to God expecting to receive what he promised. So think, think for just a moment about the nature of faith. This is so important. Friends, our faith is, a, is objective. It's about Christ, not us. And genuine faith is built on the faithfulness of God. And when we express this faith, it pleases God. Take that in for just a second. How freeing is that? Our faith is objective. It's based on Christ. It's built around the faithfulness of God. And all we have to do is say, I believe, and that pleases God. We don't have to to live on the treadmill of performance, always hoping we've done enough good works to please God. The kind of faith that pleases God comes to God and receives Christ and all that He is and all that He's done and expects God's promises that He's made to be true. A faith-paced life looks different from the life that many people are living on this treadmill of performance. So, So many people today are searching for salvation through social action and good deeds. The person living a faith-paced life, they rest in Christ and what he has done for them. See, a faith-paced life is one of peace, and it produces patience in us. It's one of peace, and it produces patience because faith requires us to believe that God will eventually fulfill all his promises. Look at chapter 11 again. I actually want you to look at verse 1. Because there's something I think we can miss in this understanding of faith that's so important for us to see and to understand. We're told faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Have you ever wondered, what does that mean, things not seen? You mean just imaginary? You mean, what does that mean, things not seen? Seen. Well, we, we get our answer in the following two verses of our passage this mor- after our passage this morning. Look at Hebrews eleven seven and 8. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by it, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes from faith. And by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. See, faith and living a faith-paced life is God has brought me into relationship with him through Christ. And he's made all of these promises. But some of these promises will not be fulfilled right now, immediately. 
And a faith-paced life says, I'm going to hold on to the promises. I'm going to look to Christ. And I'm going to wait patiently. That's what I'm going to do. See, a faith in the last analysis. Trust, waits, and believes that God will fulfill all His promises in due time. See, a faith-paced life is very different from a frantic and fearful life that our culture promotes. Our culture promotes a frantic and fearful life. What Scripture gives us is this faith-paced life that gives us peace and patience. So how do we live a faith-paced life? This is where I want to give some application. I want to recommend three things. First, rest in Christ. Rest in Christ. Many things I could say here, so much I've already said this morning. Here's what I would just want to draw our attention to. In Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, listen to the way Christ is spoken of. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Did you hear how Jesus is spoken of? He's given many titles, spoken of in many ways. But here it says, those who've turned to Christ and trusted in Him for the forgiveness of their sins. Guess who Jesus is? He's the anchor of our souls. He's the anchor. You know what this implies? That an ongoing relationship with Jesus is not only central to our faith, it's central to finding rest. It's, it's an ongoing relationship. It's not just knowing facts about Jesus. When I say faith is more than just believing in God, when I'm talking about believing in Jesus, I don't just mean sitting down and just studying all of these attributes about Jesus, which is wonderful and can stir our faith and build our confidence, but it's actually a relationship with Jesus that is central to our faith and the key to finding rest. And one of the primary ways the New Testament describes our relationship with Christ is by using language that communicates that we're united with Him. I actually just read this past week a book in which the author was stating that in the New Testament, being united with Christ is mentioned over 200 times. We're in Christ, we're with Christ, we're of Christ. See, the doctrine of union with Christ is very important. But I'm aware that it's often a neglected feature of the Christian life that rarely gets much attention. We don't understand something the New Testament speaks about quite often. This idea of union with Christ. Now, here's the hard part. I wish I had more time to explain union with Christ this morning. I would be happy to do that. I would love to do that, but I, but I can't this morning. But, but I am happy to report that next Sunday we are beginning a book, a new sermon series based on the book of Galatians. And the letter of Galatians will better help us understand what it means to be in Christ. So though I feel so 
eager to tell you, okay, here's what it means to be in Christ, in union with Christ. I, I know that God has given us this new series to walk our way through and to make our way through in order to better understand what, what does that mean to have a relationship with Christ? What does it mean to be in Him? What does it mean to be united to Him? So here's the second thing then I would recommend. Not only do we rest in Christ, we strive for rest. We strive for rest. Now that point sounds paradoxical, doesn't it? But trust me, rest requires effort. Going back to week one, in Psalm 3, we, 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 we learn this. Rest requires work. And faith is a fight. Why do I say that? The Apostle Paul said, I have fought the good fight of faith. I have finished the race. He didn't just say, well, I stood here and I believed a whole bunch of doctrines. I mean, unwaveringly believed them. I fought the fight of faith. Or look here in Hebrews 4. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What disobedience he's talking about? He was just talking about the story of God's people coming into the promised land through Joshua and that God was using the promised land as a, as a symbol of the later rest they were going to experience in Christ and then one day of fully in, in eternity. And they were not, they, because of their disobedience, they didn't take a part of that rest. They didn't get to rest as God had wanted them to and invited them to do. And the writer of Hebrews, writing to a people who are tempted to walk away from Christ. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. These are people who've heard about Christ. They, they've even expressed faith in Christ. And many of them are tempted to say, you know what? I, that, that, yeah. I see uh, why some people would do that. But I think we're going to go back to some of our roots and to our Judaism and to our, our ways of worship before. And, and, and the writer of Hebrews says, strive to enter rest. I think about Hebrews 12 too. We just read a minute ago. We're called to run a race. It doesn't just say stand there. Run a race. And one of the ways we strive to enter rest is seeking to persevere in our faith in Christ. We heard in Hebrews 12, run the race with endurance. Or think about Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39, right before our, our, our chapter 11, our passage for this morning. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. That brings us to a major theme of the book of Hebrews. You cannot read this book and not deal with the warning passages. Warning passages in chapter 6 and in chapter 10 that talk about the importance of perseverance in our faith. That we can't just say, well, I, I believe when I was a kid we got to remain. we got to keep our eyes fixed on the Savior. Let, let us run by looking to Jesus. It doesn't say, hey, you're good. You don't need to run. You believed a long time ago. No, keep, keep, keep your eyes on Him. Keep, keep looking. Keep looking. As you run, keep looking. Don't take your eyes off of Him. Don't be like Peter out on the water. You see the wind, you take your eyes off No, keep your eyes on Him. As you run, look at Him. See, we, we, we often 
don't wrestle with the hard truths that not only Jesus mentioned, but the book of Hebrews deals with about the importance of persevering so that we don't fall away. So let me ask you this question. So this gets real practical. Do you make your faith in Christ the chief priority of your life? I'm not asking in theory. If somebody stops you at the door and says, what's the most important thing to you? Oh, following Jesus. But is it the chief priority of your life and of my life? And here's how we know if that's true. Look over your schedule over the last few weeks. How much time in a day and a week do you spend given to grow in your relationship with Jesus? In a given day, how much time do you and I spend saying, I gotta, I gotta fix my eyes on, on Jesus? I, I, I gotta fix my eyes. How much time do you, would you say you give to that? In a week, how much time do you give to that? See, you see, one of the reasons we're so often, we, we so often feel so frantic and frustrated has to do with the fact that we spend far too much time giving our attention to things of lesser importance than our relationship with Christ. Do we spend more time looking at our stocks and our portfolio than we do and thinking about our future investments than we do thinking about, okay, Today, not, not because I just said I, I believed and walked an hour when I was a kid. Today, I'm looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith. And I'm going to look to him and I'm going to love him more. And I'm going to know how he loves me and I'm going to bank on his promises. So we want to rest. We've got to be people who are striving for rest by making our relationship with Christ central. Not in theory, but in actuality. Lastly, here's the third thing. Make Sundays a day of Make Sundays a day of rest. Now, let me just be real clear what I'm not trying to imply. I'm not trying to say that Sunday must be treated as the day you cease from all work. People have different convictions about how they view Sunday and is Sunday the Sabbath and what all do we do. I'm not weighing into that, to that this morning. Here's the point I'm making. I'm suggesting you treat Sunday differently than you treat any other day of the week by making it a day of worship and resting in Christ. Sunday is the day that we are setting apart to worship. And we're not doing it because we, we came here this morning because we think, well, if we do this, if, if we really sing loud enough, if, 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 if God looks down and he sees how sincere we are, maybe we'll be right with him. No, we came here this morning because we know our hope and our security is in Jesus alone. And we're coming with our hands raised to rest, to say, yes. My security is in God and in Christ and what He has done. See, the book of Hebrews gives primacy to the gathering of God's people for corporate worship. One of the ways we live a faith-paced life requires Christian community. We can't live a faith-paced life just on our own. We were never made to do that. Hebrews chapter 3 Listen to these words. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So what are we to do? But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
For we have come to share in Christ if we indeed hold our original confidence firm to the end. Or look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For the one who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as the habit is as, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. We could look at other passages, but here's the point being made. Sundays must be a day where we're coming to rest, and we're coming to rest in Christ, and we're coming to rest with God's people. It's not an option. It's not something we can say, well, I can be a Christian apart from the people of God. Don't be wiser than God. He just said, you don't want to fall away. There's going to be unbelieving aspects of your heart. And the only way it's going to be dealt with is others around you are going to see you and they're going to love you and they're going to tell you, brother, sister, don't give up. Hang in there. And if you say, oh, I don't need that. I'll, I'll, I've been a Christian for so long. Pride comes before the fall. Don't dare think that. We need one another. We need to worship together. We need to gather together. Lastly, in chapter 13, the book ends after this benediction. In verse 22 with these words, I appeal to you, brothers, Bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Now, we could just move right past that, but that's key to understanding this book. Do, do, you, do you understand how important that statement is? Because it gives us a window into the book. Even though this book ends like a letter, did you notice the rest of the book doesn't look like a letter? Hebrews is called an epistle because it still has that letter format. But here's what scholars, New Testament scholars would say about the book of Hebrews based on chapter 13, verse 22, when he calls it a word of exhortation. It's a sermon. God's people are tempted to fall away, stop resting in Christ. And you know what they need? The writer of Hebrews sends them a sermon. A sermon on the Old Testament. An expositional sermon. And if you know anything about Hebrews, it is tough sledding. But through that message, God would use it to hold his people fast. And how do you think they received that message? Remember, this is a long time ago. They don't have mailboxes. They don't have the internet. How do you think they got this message? They gathered with the people of God and somebody read it to them. Do not neglect the preaching of God's word. And anytime we get a chance to highlight this point, we want to highlight it. There's a reason we preach the way we do through books of the Bible. The reason we're about to start Galatians. It's not because we lack creativity. It's because creativity is not a place for the pulpit. It's a place for us to say, thus saith the Lord. Well, how do you know the Lord said that? Because this is, this is the logic of the text. This is the way the narrative flows. This is the way the, the, the imagery is used in this psalm. We can all see it for ourselves. 
God uses his word and the preaching of his word to keep us in Christ. And we need the preaching of God's word, sitting under it, applying it with others. If we're, we're going to find rest. Brothers, in closing, let, re, let me remind us all that a faith paced life requires patience and perseverance. But in the long run, it produces a life that is peaceful and rewarding. Here's why. Because our life is built around something bigger than you and your schedule. It's built around something sure and steadfast. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us today. Thank you for this series on rest. Lord, now we ask for you to do the most important work, but the hardest work. Help us to do what we've heard. May we not just be hearers of the word, but doers. Would you bring to mind the truths of Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 and Psalm 131 and Psalm 127 and Hebrews 11 in the days ahead when we are tempted to be frantic? Help us, Lord, to be people who rest in you and our faith in Christ and all that he's done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.